Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG Live event. Hello and welcome to this edition of IFG Live, in which we'll be discussing what has happened to workers during the coronavirus shutdown, the role of new policies to subsidise wages and boost support for the unemployed, and what international experience can teach us about how effective governments have been in insulating workers from the worst of the crisis and the new problems that face governments as they try to get their economies back up and running. I'm Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist at the Institute for Government, and I'm delighted to be joined by an expert panel for this discussion. Our panellists aren't quite spread across the four corners of the world, but they are joining us from four different countries, demonstrating at least one of the definite benefits of changes, certainly to the IFG's ways of working in the world of coronavirus. Joining us from Paris, we have Antoine Bozio, who is director of the Institut des Politiques Publiques, apologies for my uh, French pronunciation there, and also served on the French Council of Economic Analysis, advising the French Prime Minister from 2012 to 2016. Welcome, Antoine. Hello. We have Karen Dynan, Professor of Practice of Economics at Harvard University, who also served as Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy and Chief Economist at the US Department of the Treasury from 2014 to 2017. Welcome, Karen. Thanks, it's great to be here. Barra Rowentree is an economist at the Economic and Social Research Institute in Dublin and has been providing analysis of the Irish government's economic response to COVID-19. Hello, Barra. Thanks for having me, Gemma. And finally, Martin Sanbu, the Financial Times' European economics commentator. Hello, Martin. Coronavirus has led to an unprecedented contraction of the UK economy, as it has for many others around the world. As governments decided to deliberately put their economies on ice... While some workers have been able to keep doing their jobs from home, many others suddenly found that their services were no longer needed, meaning governments across all advanced economies have been very worried about how to support family incomes during this time and how to ensure that their economies can get back up and running again quickly as the lockdown restrictions are eased. In the UK, the largest element of the government's fiscal response to COVID-19 has been the coronavirus job retention scheme, which is expected to cost around £60 billion, or 3% of GDP, and has led to the government paying the wages of 9 million of the UK's 30 million strong workforce. So far, this has been viewed as a success, not least because unemployment appears not to have increased as much in the UK as it has in some other countries. But other countries have taken different approaches and understanding what has gone on elsewhere can help us understand what impact these policies are having and what questions face the government as it tries to get the economy going again and withdraw this support. Karen, let me come to you first. How has the US government approached support for workers during the crisis and how effective do you think that response has been? Um, Sure. Well, thanks, Gemma. Um, The United States, like other countries, has seen a plunge in economic activity, both because of the shutdowns and because of choices to socially distance. And the result has been widespread uh, layoffs by firms. Our um, official unemployment rate now exceeds 13%, although it would probably be several percentage points higher if one were to correct for some measurement problems. So the U.S. policy response has both a worker side and a business side. And on the worker side, we have um, enhanced our unemployment compensation system. So most notably through the end of July, unemployed workers are getting an extra $600 per week in benefits which um, for many workers at the lower end of the wage distribution, more than um, replaces their pre-layoff earnings. Um, But there have been other changes to the system as well, including extending the duration of regular benefits and allowing self-employed contractors and gig economy workers to receive benefits, which aren't part of the usual system. Um, In terms of policy on the business side, We've put several measures in place to encourage businesses to retain or hire back their workers. So, for example, there's a a modest employee retention tax credit uh, for firms. Uh, There's also a sizable uh, program for small businesses, which are um, kind of the most hardest hit firms in our economy. Uh, It's a program that provides loans that convert to grants to the degree that businesses leave their payrolls unchanged. So there's an incentive there for them to keep workers on. And it's just, I think the end of goal of these policies is similar to what other countries are trying to do. Uh, basically, US policy is trying to reduce immediate hardship 
for families. Um, and uh, it's also trying to reduce the amount of what's called um, scarring or um, you might call it structural damage to our economy. Uh, with the idea being that even after the virus containment issues are behind us, we can't have a robust recovery if households and businesses are wiped out financially. In terms of you know, what we know about whether the programs are working, uh, the evidence suggests that, that hardship has been limited so far. So we know, for example, that um, lower income households, despite being disproportionately affected by the layoffs, as a group, um, they've seen their spending basically bounce back to fairly normal levels. We're seeing some, some amount of delinquent loans, but we're not seeing a tidal wave of debt defaults. Um, employment, there was a bit of a rebound in May, uh, probably more so in June, although we haven't seen those numbers yet. Um, so that's what the evidence looks like so far. I should caution that we're at very early stages. The lack of evidence scarring thus far uh, in part reflects the huge amount of fiscal support that the U.S. government is pouring into the economy. And that support under current law is going to wane over time. Um, moreover, although um, various data suggests that uh, the vast majority of unemployed workers were told they were only temporarily furloughed, past experience suggests that not all of those workers will in fact be rehired. And that's because we're seeing businesses struggle and fail, particularly in the small business sector. So they're just, some of these businesses just aren't likely to bring their workers back. So, you know, the point being we're going to see, hardship has been limited so far, but we're going to see more hardship and probably more of the kind of scarring that we've avoided in large part so far um, going forward. And that may well hold back our recovery. Thanks, Karen. Antoine, perhaps I can come to you next, because in the UK, the idea of the government subsidising wages is totally unprecedented um, for UK governments. But that's the sort of policy that France has actually had in place for somewhat longer. So can you say a bit about how the French government has expanded on existing schemes and otherwise supported workers through the coronavirus? Uh, yes, Gemma. So in France, just to put in perspective, there has been a quite strict lockdown between mid-March to uh, mid-May. So the government has announced uh, big expansions to schemes that actually already existed to the furlough scheme or short-time uh, uh, work scheme. They existed for a long period of time since actually World War I, but they were very limited in scope, which were mostly funded by firms uh, for temporary period, and the use of these type of schemes have been very limited. And it's only very recently that, actually, as the example of the German scheme, the Kurzarbeit scheme, that the French government has decided, actually, during the last financial crisis in 2008, to use more of these schemes. And in 2009, these schemes were expanded so that their use by firms would be more common. Uh, but still, the generosity of the schemes during the 2009-89 crisis was limited. And the big difference for the coronavirus crisis was that the government decided to increase the subsidy to really level where basically 70% of gross earnings were covered by the French state during the period of mid-March to mid-May. Uh, starting in June, the government has started to reduce the generosity of the subsidy. And all the discussion today and the debate is about how to remove the subsidy when the activities is progressively back to normal. So there's been um, some official uh, documents released last week uh, by the French government saying that the current scheme would progressively go in sort of extinct in a sense that the, the level of the wage subsidy will be reduced to 60%, then 50 and then 40 percent uh, so that basically by October the main scheme would be uh, slightly reduced in in, um, in its um, in the amount of the subsidy but the the government has also announced a new special scheme for more for some for the firms that would need this support for a longer period beyond October and uh, for that 
uh, new scheme. So we don't know all the details yet, but what the French government intend to do is to, to say that for some firm in some sectors that will be hit for a longer period of time, they could use a form of support, a wage subsidy that um, lasts beyond basically October. So that's the main, also like in the UK, the main supports for, from the French government. Uh, the, so these, the, uh, the work, the furlough scheme is supposed to cost 31 billion euros, uh, so 1.2% of GDP. Uh, among a total of uh, measures that have been announced to um, 57 billion euros, so it's 2.3% of GDP. That's the total measure. So they don't include only this furlough scheme. They also include uh, uh, extra spending on healthcare, um, some uh, payroll tax cuts for firms during the period of uh, lockdown, and an additional social benefits, typically by relaxing rules for eligibility for uh, for social benefits. So and in addition to these tax and benefit measures, there's been guaranteed loans offered to firms uh, for which the cost is still not yet known, depending on how big the impact will be for uh, firms to, uh, to actually carry on uh, the, the business as usual. Um, so what can we say in terms of the efficiency of these measures at this time? So in a sense, there's been um, no increase in unemployment rate. Um, no increase in um, um, in uh, failed businesses going uh, more bankrupt than usual. So the bankruptcy uh, rate has has uh, uh, pretty much actually gone down during the period of lockdown. But most uh, analysts in France uh, think that there will be an increase in unemployment and increased in, um, uh, in uh, later on during the year when the measures will be removed. Um, so it's still out there, uh, the jury, to see how effective these measures will have been. But I think, and I'll come back perhaps later in the discussions, a lot of the, the decisions that the French government has taken in favor of this type of scheme have been based on IDs and evaluations carried out during the 2008-2009 uh, the, um, period, which have uh, relatively given a positive assessment of short-term support during you know, intense crises. Then when you remove them, then basically it could be relatively efficient. But I, I could talk about that a bit later in, in the discussion. Um, Barra, let me come to you next. Um, so I think I'm right in saying that the Irish government, in a sense, started with a somewhat US-like approach with focusing on increasing the generosity of unemployment benefits for those who'd lost their jobs and then slightly shifted tack towards putting more weight on uh, wage subsidy schemes. So can you say a bit about how that worked? Yeah, I suppose just as geographically, Ireland is kind of somewhere between Paris and Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, and so we're kind of floating in the middle of the Atlantic and between those kind of approaches. And I suppose, so if you want to look at how the Irish government has supported workers, I suppose the first set of measures that announced were actually an increase in the generosity and coverage of sick pay and illness benefit at the start of March, um, actually on the same day that the St. Patrick's Day celebrations here were cancelled. Um, and then the following week, um, the government essentially announced that anyone who had lost their, their job, an employee or the self-employed, would be entitled to an unemployment benefit payment regardless of their social insurance contribution history. So typically it's it's based on how many social insurance contributions you've made in two years preceding uh, the, the current one. They waived that and they, they made the scheme much more generous. And they subsequently then, another week or two later, increased the rate of that payment from what had been 204 euro a week to 350 euro a week. So much more towards the kind of the US end of things from, from that initial uh, kind of, kind of a, a policy um, response. By the end of the month, though, there had kind of been quite a lot of discussions with unions and business groups, and also I think in response to schemes that were being announced in in, in Britain, but in particularly I think in Denmark, the, the scheme there got quite a lot of coverage. The government announced a wage subsidy scheme, which would pay workers seventy percent of their previous after-tax earnings up to a cap of four hundred, and so the total subsidy was capped at four hundred and ten euro per week. And it also announced a whole host of credit guarantee schemes for small and medium enterprises. Um, so that was kind of the, the initial policy response. And so far, there hasn't been much more kind of announced there. And I kind of come back to that, but it's kind of because we've been in the middle of getting a government uh, together. Um, but I think if you want to look at why this mix of policies was originally chosen, 
and whether it was effective. So the, initially, I think the focus of policy was on discouraging people from going to work when they had symptoms of COVID. And so, you know, the statutory sick pay or the equivalents that we would have had was paid at, you know, for a quite low rate. And so raising that so that people didn't feel they had to go to work was one of the, the first bits. But then also ensuring that the incomes of those who lost their jobs was cushioned was the real primary policy. And from that point of view, I think it was quite effective. So the, those payments were set at a relatively high level, um, particularly for low earners. We have the same issue in Ireland in, as the US that for a lot of people, actually, they not not the majority who lost their job, but quite a, a large minority even, um, would get a relatively large share of their earnings or even more than they were getting from work. And so for low earners who spend much of their incomes on essentials like groceries and rents, that was kind of, I think, seen as quite important. And the money was also dispersed very quickly. So I think in the space of about two or three weeks, 500,000 people were claiming this pandemic unemployment payment, as the benefit was named, which is equivalent to about a quarter of those who had been in work at the start of the year. So, you know, really large numbers and the money got out there very, very quickly, I think, quickly, more quickly than it had in, in, in maybe the UK. Um, but then following, again, the, the other government's announcements of wage subsidy schemes, the focus then turns to trying to keep people in jobs through part payment of wages. And here, I think maybe policy was a little less effective in the initial stages anyway, in that it took longer to announce and roll out than the, the um, enhanced unemployment benefit. Um, it took quite a long time for details of who qualified and how to be established. So the revenue commissioner here, the, the IRS or, or the UK HM, um, HMRC, were given the task of doing that because they're thought to be good at IT systems. They don't screw it up as much as maybe uh, other, other parts of government. Um, but they only got around to issuing guidance on who qualifies and, and, and how in May. Um, and that's part of it, there's a lot to work out, but it did take longer than the unemployment benefit. Um, and the initial design of the scheme was also a lot less generous to low-paid workers than the unemployment benefit. So it was set at 70% of your after-tax earnings. And that meant that some employees were better off being let go than kept on and did create perhaps some issues there with with, you know, if you're uh, an employer and you're worried about your employee, employee's well-being, you might well have decided to say, look, go off on temporary, I'll, I'll let you go temporarily and hopefully we can take you back later on, But and you'll do better than if you, than if you get the scheme. Now, so revisions were made to the scheme that addressed some of those issues, and there's also a revision that needed to be na- made because they had inadvertently um, made people returning from paternity uh, leave or unpaid leave ineligible for the subsidy, and so that required some fixes. But really, that, that, yeah, so, so that, from that point of view, I think that, that the wage subsidy scheme was a little less effective than the pandemic unemployment scheme. And, but there's an interaction there between them that's quite interesting. I think maybe we can come to that later on. All of these policies have been expanded through to the end of August um, with some reduction in generosity for the unemployment benefit for lower paid workers, anyone who had been earning less than €200 Euro a week. Um, but really, I think the difficult decisions on how to withdraw these supports have been kicked down the road. And that's you know, largely because we only actually got a new executive over the weekend. Uh, so that we've just had a new government formed and had been the previous government that had stayed on as is um, the, the, the way here and, to, uh, and that had been making these decisions. So not unreasonably, they probably decided that they weren't maybe best placed to make quite monumental decisions on how to phase out these schemes um, if there was going to be a new government. Um, but probably the biggest decision they will have to make is on the wage subsidy scheme because eligibility for that is based on a business experiencing significant economic disruption, which seems to be a self-declared likely reduction in turnover of 25% or more. And so from that point of view, it's kind of interesting that you don't, workers don't need to be furloughed as in as in the UK, and they, they can come in and, and work or continue to work and have some of the wages subsidized. But it makes it harder to see how you're going to phase it out with that kind of design in mind. But again, so there's going to be some big decisions there, but so far there's not really an indication. And I suppose we're only two days into the new government's uh, um, um, term of office. So we'll see what happens there in the coming weeks ahead. Thanks, Barra. Martin, let me come to you now then. You obviously report on a huge range of countries across Europe and comment on what's going on. What do you think are the most interesting choices that have been made and things that we've learned from the different choices that countries have made? I think something that's really very interesting uh, about this crisis when you observe it is that you've had an enormous economic shock that's pretty similar across a lot of countries but countries that actually come into this shock with fairly different labor market tradition, labor market institutions, existing benefit systems, and so on. So you have this sort of institutional variety, and then everyone comes into an identical, pretty much enormous shock. Now, it's not the public health crisis that's identical, because COVID um, and contagion generally has affected different countries differently. 
but they've all pretty much taken this choice of locking down their economies for public health reasons. And that turns out to be a very similar shock uh, across most economies. It hits the same sectors, those that require physical presence, retail, hospitality, these things. That also means it's the people more towards the bottom of the wage distribution who are more affected, whereas those in knowledge jobs can do their jobs from home over the internet and so on. So, so you have a number of economic variables that are all pretty similar. And you have countries coming into them with different cultures, traditions, institutions for the labor market. And it seems to me that on the whole, until now, in the first phase, uh, the, the similarity of the shock has really overwhelmed the, the differences of the systems. We've heard about some of the detailed differences from, from the countries of my fellow panelists here. But I think on the whole, the striking thing is that everyone has said, this is an attempt to put the economy in a coma and then try to wake it up afterwards. So let's try to maintain and not sever relationships between employers and employees. I mean, that's certainly true in pretty much all of Europe and Ireland has moved to that same model we've just heard. And I think Karen was saying that even in the US, that's kind of, it, it looks different, but it's sort of intended to achieve the same thing from a different institutional background. And we've seen, of course, in the US statistics that a lot of these you know, massive flashing red unemployment indicators. A lot of them are people who are registered as as temporarily unemployed. We'll see how temporary it is. We're still very early. Uh, we've only had the first economic shock, uh, and there's probably still a lot of choices to to make. But I think one observation is that on the whole, from their different traditions, most countries have tried something more or less similar, throwing a lot of public money into the labor market in order to allow people to stop working because that's necessary, but trying to maintain the prospect of returning to work whenever that is possible. Now, um, there are sort of two things to say about that. One is that, that the policy idea is sort of similar, uh, but there's a kind of mechanics of policy. And, and another thing that we don't talk as much about is how just in terms of the mechanics of getting these payments to people, how well have countries performed? And, and then there's some interesting variety. So if you think about the policy design, compare the UK and Norway, countries that, that I know pretty well. The UK had to kind of make up from scratch uh, a system of wage subsidies for furloughed workers. Norway basically had that in place. That's how it regularly works. You can furlough people under certain conditions the government will pay up to, I think it's 80% of, of the wage up to a certain level. What they had to tweak was to basically shorten the period in which the employer pays that amount from, I think, 20 days to two days. But the system was there. So it was just about putting enough money into it, tweaking a little bit. Uh, the UK had to build it all up from scratch, kind of looking at models elsewhere and then very quickly defining it and did a remarkable job, I have to say. Uh, but then it's a question of, does it actually work? and we've heard complaints in the UK about the money not actually getting there. Interestingly, you've had the same thing in Norway that you would have thought would be well prepared. So the system is there, your entitlement are well defined, but it's actually taken months for many of these furloughed people to be getting that money into their, into their bank accounts. Um, and so we've had this other debate and policy question that's come from the mechanics about you know, how do we actually get money to people quickly? And so you've had debates, for example, in the US, would it have been better to kind of channel this through the tax system rather than the unemployment benefit system? Uh, that, I think, there's more variety. And also, it hasn't been properly resolved because, you know, we're still really trying to put, put the, all the pieces in place. And then the final thing I want to say is where we're really going to see difference, I think, is going where we go from here. Because we... Don't know, but we can be pretty confident that not all these jobs will be viable. So even if you could bring everyone back, not all of those jobs will still be there. And not because the companies have gone bankrupt, that will be a problem, but because you can't, you know, your pub isn't viable anymore, your theater isn't viable anymore, even just because of social distancing, for example, that may stay in place. We don't know how bad that is going to be. Uh, what we do know is that there'll be some difficult policy choices to make about how you shift from keeping the economy in a coma 
to the way you wake it up again. And here you're starting to see these differences. So, you know, we heard how in France there's now, they're now looking at a longer term fellow system for selected uh, sectors and businesses. Other places emphasize very much that we want to get out of this as fast as we can. Um, there are differences in terms of how, again, between the UK and Norway, at least the way the system were designed at the start, the UK fellow system was set up to be binary, right? You're either furloughed or you're not. The Norwegian system allowed all kinds of partial partial hours, reduced on, reduced employment, partial return, and so on, and a system that, that worked with that. So I think it's really in coming back that we're going to see the even harder questions and probably more differences because the sectoral differences in different economies mean that different countries will probably face more varied challenges uh, than we did coming into this. Lots of really interesting points to to come back to. Uh, Anton, perhaps I can come back to the point that you raised in your opening remarks. Um, So I guess the, the point that Martin was getting at about different traditions is that the UK Treasury's orthodoxy would be that normally the market works well and creative destruction is healthy and that if the demand isn't there for certain businesses, we let them go under and others will come in to replace them. And that contributes to the the dynamism of the economy. And that's why the UK hasn't traditionally had these sorts of schemes where firms can apply to the government to help them out and subsidise wages during temporary periods of economic recession. Um, But obviously, different approaches have been taken in other countries. I mean, I guess we haven't seen anything quite on the scale of the the shock that we've had from the coronavirus. But could you say a little bit about what the evidence is on how these sorts of wage subsidy schemes have worked in European countries that have used them in other crises, and whether that gives us any evidence that they, they do avoid some of the longer term costs that might come about from the loss of businesses? which which Karen was referring to. Yeah, sure, because um, in a sense, I think that at least in the case of France, the um, the debate about the um, evaluations of pre- the previous crisis has, has mattered for the decisions of the government to go to increase the generosity of the furlough scheme. So basically, there's been much talk during the last financial crisis of the German example, which had been able to, to suffer a much bigger crisis, but to rebound more, f- more quickly than a country like France, where firms using the furlough scheme have been able to uh, ask their employees back to work more quickly and basically to get a big rebound. So that was sort of in the policy debate, the idea that the German had done better and that one of the reasons of that was the use of this type of photo scheme. So if we look at the evidence in terms of what economists have done using the data during the financial crisis, we have now a number of papers that have looked at the case of Switzerland, uh, Italy, uh, France, and Germany, where all these countries have used the furlough schemes at a different extent. And economists have devised ways of properly evaluating the causal impact of these schemes by comparing, for example, in the Swiss canton, the different eligibility rules, the uh, some thresholds used in, in Italy for whether you were not uh, um, uh, eligible for the schemes. And basically all these studies conclude that these schemes have been efficient in saving jobs and avoiding bankruptcies of firms. And in all countries, the positive effects really dominate what you, the counterfactual uh, impact that of letting people more unemployment and basically, as Martin was saying, the fact that to let uh, these links between employees and employers be cut, this creates enormous negative externalities. And, uh, and in a sense, there is efficiency in trying to maintain these links when and only when this is a short-term uh, impact. And these studies have also shown that when you let these schemes for longer, and in the case of France and Italy, these have been left for a longer period, then you start seeing negative impacts where firms use that and in a sense for no efficiency gains where at the end you, you get cost to the public finance for much more, much, much more gain. In the case of the Swiss evaluation, you find long-term effects of having this support of the furlough schemes during the 2008-2009 crisis, where you have at the end more jobs and more activity down the road than was uh, uh, for those firms who have uh, benefited from uh, from the scheme. So that type of evidence has, I think, played a role 
in the coronavirus crisis to say, oh, maybe this is the scheme when governments, and at least in France, it was the case that at the start of the lockdown, there was the idea, this will be a short-term lockdown. You know, people were talking about one month and then one and a half months, two months. And I think now the question is how we're we going to withdraw these schemes without having the potential negative externalities, uh, moral hazard effects that could be seen if we maintain these schemes for too long. Martin. Uh, I just want to follow up what, uh, on what Antoine said. I completely agree. This, uh, the German Kurzarbeit scheme has been kind of totemic in, uh, in Eurozone in particular, political and policy discussions since the global financial crisis. So it, it was very much seen as a, as a model. So there's a bit of a follow the leader effect. Why can't we be more like the Germans? And, and on the whole, that, that has been a good idea. I think this was also you know, taken into account in the, in the UK Treasury. Uh, but I, I just wanted to add that the Kurzarbeit scheme, that sort of scheme, it can be expected to work particularly well in manufacturing, right? Because industry manufacturing tends to have these very sharp cyclical swings. Uh, it, it often, and we know that manufacturing is big in Germany, and that's kind of what uh, what this scheme was designed for. Um, because manufacturing really goes down sharply, more than service sectors mostly in normal recessions, and com comes back faster. So it kind of makes sense to keep those links because you know that's how that sector behaves. Service sectors don't behave like that in normal times. But of course, this is a, an unprecedented crisis also in that sense that service sectors have on the whole actually been hit more uh, because some of them rely on this physical presence um, more even than, than factory work, modern factory work. Thank you. Karen, can I perhaps come to you next? Because um, Martin pointed out the, the distinction, actually lots of countries adopting quite a similar approach despite background differences in ideologies and institutions. Um, I guess the US, as you described, stands out as a bit of an outlier in not having a sort of direct wage subsidy scheme in the way that many other countries have. To what extent is that an ideological difference or is that just the way that the US system works? It wouldn't have been possible to construct something quite like that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think the initial choice to go with this different system was a a choice about um, you know working with the institutions that we had. I don't. It's impressive what the UK did, and I don't. I don't know if that's something that we could have done in this country. I will say that there are. Um, I mean, so there are clear advantages, as Antoine was saying, to these wage uh, subsidy schemes that you're not kind of making this formal break between the firm and the worker. And so all these frictions you have um, associated with rehiring um, aren't there. And um, that can uh, greatly hasten the recovery. But I think it does depend on how much structural adjustment is needed, right? So, you know, people who like the way we're doing it, what they argue is, well, the economy as uh, as Martin was saying, it's it's going to have to change in certain ways. There's going to have to be this period of structural adjustment. And structural adjustment, as we know, is probably the main thing that explains why some recessions, like the Great Recession, was really long and other recessions are short. Um, so there's going to be this need for a structural adjustment. And if you, because we're going to have to have certain sectors shrinking and other sectors will grow. And so the US system where, where people are do kind of leave their employer and they go into the pool of unemployed that can hasten that kind of structural adjustment because uh you know the workers are out there unemployed if, if the jobs aren't there to be rehired back into they're already on their way to looking for jobs in another sector whereas um you know, if you have these wage uh, subsidy schemes then you may be in a system where um the workers are, are brought back to the to the firm they were initially working for, but that firm is not viable. So that firm's gonna have to at some point fail anyway. And so you're just kind of putting off the experience of the worker being kind of laid off and finding the job in another sector. So I think we we, we uh, kind of did end up with this system uh, because we were working with the institutions we had, but I do think that um, it, it may turn out to be something that, that does make our economy more dynamic in a way that hastens recovery. But we'll have to see. 
Is there any evidence of that yet in the US jobs numbers? I mean, you, you said the jobs have rebounded a bit. Is there much evidence of people going back to different things? I mean, from what we can tell, there are firms that are rehiring the workers that they laid off. But um, in many, many cases, they're only rehiring some of the workers that they laid off. Um, beyond that, uh, it's, it's really hard to tell how much uh, kind of sector to sector flow there is. I mean, I think we're just, uh, there's a lag with the data, but on top of that, I just think it's going to take at least a few more months for this to start playing out. So perhaps I can pose the question to all of you, because as you've all alluded to, the really, so far governments have been pretty successful in insulating households from the worst of the economic hit. Households haven't seen the kind of income loss that would have been associated with the loss of GDP that we've had which means that there's a lot riding on getting the next stage of the policy response right as governments try and get their economies back up and running. I guess question for, for each of you, what do you think are the biggest challenges the government faces? And is this going to be about adjusting the schemes that they adopted in the, the lockdown phase or do new policies start to become more important in making sure we get back to a, a dynamic labour market on the other side of the lockdown? I'll have a quick stab at the, the second part of that that question. Okay, Martin. So one thing we haven't talked that much about uh, is demand management, demand stimulus. And partly that's because the nature of the recession starts at, in the supply side of the economy because it's been, it's been locked down um, on purpose. So it kind of starts as a supply side shock. Uh, there has been a lot of demand repercussions from that. We know that there is, in addition to the supply uh, shock, there are demand effects from people who, despite the fact that incomes have been sustained, still make less than before. They're nervous about the future. And of course, some people can't spend because they hold up, uh, hold up at home. As we start to come out of this, I think the demand dimension will, you know, it'll take on monumental importance because what we really don't want is as the supply side starts to open up again, as it's possible, we can allow businesses to open up again. We don't want demand to fall short of the supply. We know from experience from the global financial crisis and the recovery from, from there that most countries messed that bit of the equation up, that there was not enough demand stimulus. There was a shift to fiscal consolidation, even monetary tightening in continental Europe far too early, and that slowed things down. We don't want to make that mistake again. And the scale is much bigger this time, and the uncertainty is much bigger. So it's much, much harder. But I think one big question outside the labor market policies, they matter too, but outside of that, um, some very big questions are going to face policymakers uh, in treasuries and central banks in terms of how much they dare to, to keep the foot on the accelerator and in what way, you know, how do you get money out there to keep spending up and ideally a little bit ahead of how the supply side uh, recovers. And perhaps obviously that, that point about demand returning is important and perhaps thinking about the nature of the coronavirus shock, there are probably some sectors that are going to see demand return more quickly than others and some particularly uh, theatres perhaps or any kind of businesses that rely on people coming together in close confines and that perhaps would include aviation and tourism um, it's going to be take longer for the demand in those sectors to return. Does that mean that governments are going to increasingly have to think about differentiating their policies to help those sectors that are where demand may be expected to come back eventually, but not yet? Um, or does the government face a difficult decision about knowing whether that demand is ever coming back? And at what point do they stop supporting those sectors of the economy? I don't know, Antoine, do you want to to go first. I mean, you said the French government has already gone down this path of starting to differentiate between sectors. How, how is that working? So I think in a sense, that's the key uh, challenge for the policy to withdraw this support. The problem to withdraw this support entirely for the entire economy, which is the way to push forwards to back to business as usual, you will face the sectors which will still be under restriction and still cannot operate as, as before. So um, 
the perception in France is that as uh, restrictions have been lifted, so now in Paris, you can go to restaurants. The, the I mean, basically the constraint is that you need to wear a mask when you go through the restaurant or for, but, you know, activity is, is very much back to normal for most businesses. But there are some parts, some sectors that were really still under constraints, as you mentioned, going to theaters, cultural events, if you do uh, big sports events or the aviation tourism has been it and will probably hit for months to go. And the dilemma for the government has been, well, do I want to have the same scheme for everybody? And if I want to put back everybody back to work, I need to remove all this support. But I need to accept that I'll be blamed for all the all the jobless and the unemployment that will uh, will, will uh, face these sectors, or do I try to come up with a special scheme that is trying to be designed for those firms in those sector all the in those sectors that will be affected for longer? The French government seems to have taken the path to provide this long-term support, which is probably in line with. Um, long-term tradition of state support for sectors and involvement in uh, the French state is quite happy to support its aviation, its Airbus, its uh, tourism and uh, whatever um, French firm or French sectoral uh, components. But um, still, it's not an easy decision because by doing that, if you do this long-term support and you, as Karen was mentioning earlier, you prevent some structural adjustments, you prevent those firms or those sectors to actually transform themselves to face the new economy that will be post-COVID-19, you, you're not supporting them in the long run because you're not helping them to basically transform and to adapt to uh, this new environment. And I think there's a big questions of, you know, are we going to see flights and aviation really the same way as before? Uh, it's clearly not sure that, uh, I mean, on, on the other hand, it's, I think there's a good element to think that, I mean, these sectors need really to adapt uh, to the new environment we'll, we'll be in. Ara? Yeah, so to kind of pick up on that, um, I suppose what we're seeing in Ireland now, pubs and restaurants are only really opening this week. On Monday was the first day that they could open. You could go to a pub uh, again, but only so long as you also bought a substantive meal, uh, which is classified as one which cost nine euro, um, which apparently was a, an amount operated from some shillings and pence based back in the 60s when relevant legislation was defined. Um, but we, I suppose one thing that we're going to see in the coming weeks at the moment, the numbers claiming the enhanced unemployment benefit peaked at about 600,000 in kind of May. They're now down to about 400,000, so fallen substantially. But a large number of those are about 100,000, a little more, are in the accommodation and food services sector. And so that's really the sector, I think, where we'll see kind of how much is that going to recover? Is the business model just infeasible with social distancing requirements in place with, you know, will people want to go back to, to pubs and restaurants, particularly the types of pubs and restaurants that may be quite common here where you're crammed in together without much necessary distance between you and you're certainly not outside because that's not going to go well with the weather conditions um so i suppose you kind of you, you get to a situation then is should you as a government i suppose we'll know in the coming weeks how, how sustainable some of these business models are but should you try subsidize those particular industries or should you then try provide more support to deal with to try and help those people transition to other sectors so again here in ireland we were facing a problem where about a year ago or even four months, five months ago, we were talking about labour shortages in particularly in the construction sector. So to deal with the uh, much more supply is needed in the area of housing, our housing stock is very energy inefficient. And there was real concern about, well, how in the name, how do, how do we get people to actually build these houses and refurb these houses and retrofit these houses so that they don't seep energy? And so then you, I, thought, I think there is going to be a real question then about, well, can you, given particularly lots of these workers in the accommodation food services sector are maybe younger can you get them to retrain over to these these type of, type of areas or is that just is that something that won't happen is it, will these people want to do different things and not want to go into those sectors so there is going to be that real challenge for policymakers in the months ahead of do you sustain try sustain uh, business models which have taken a real hit in sectors or do you help can you help people transition to new areas yeah just in terms of the u.s situation I think, I think there's a, 
a clear case for um, targeting some sectors. So um, I think probably everybody would agree when it comes to uh, the medical sector, hospitals, uh, we should be uh, you know, doing whatever it takes to get them the support they need. Um, and in the US case, I also think there's a strong case for uh, supporting our state and local governments. Uh, they hire a bunch of people. Um, they provide important social services and they're taking massive, massive fiscal hits. So I think we want to target money there. But I would say beyond that, uh, it's just, it, it's really hard. I mean, it's hard to know what sectors are viable at this point because our understanding of the virus is limited and also because we really don't know how soon the vaccines are going to arrive and how effective they're going to be. So it's hard to know. Um, having worked in government, I can say it's very messy politically. So our Treasury Department actually does have money to target certain sectors, but they've been pretty sparing in their use of it, I think, because the politics are, are messy when you start to go down this road. Um, beyond that, I would say, I think when people start talking about targeting, what's in the back of their head is, well, funds are limited. I don't think at this point that the funds are limited. I think that our government could do much more. And if that's the case, then I think just going back to what Martin was saying, there's just a strong case for a broad-based stimulus as uh, supply starts to come back. Because uh, you know, if you, if you want to do something that's going to induce firms to rehire workers, the, the most important thing you can do is give them the confidence that people are going to uh, be willing to buy their goods and services uh, once the virus issues start to be behind us. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's the point of the broad-based stimulus. Martin, can I come to you on a, a bit of this question? Um, so the other comments kind of brought up this one of there are kind of two difficulties in distinguishing support between sectors. One being the sort of genuinely from kind of economic fundamentals principles, identifying those sectors that really are more in need than others. Um, and then the other side of that is the sort of the, the danger of political lobbying, that once you start to distinguish, you will get every single industry group lobbying to put themselves in the category of extended support. Do you have any sense from what you see across countries of, of whether what makes kind of this sectoral distinction unattractive to governments? Is it, is it really the political problems once you start opening up your, yourself to the lobbying? Or is it really that fundamentally this is just too hard to distinguish those that really are more in need than others and therefore it's just not worth trying to do that? I worry most about the politics. Um, let me give you one particularly egregious example, which is that in Norway, the oil industry managed to lobby the government into tax relief. I mean, it was sort of postponing taxes and so on. But, you know, if there's one sector we really shouldn't worry too much about, it's oil extraction. And yet uh, they managed to get politicians to add something to the various stimulus packages to to make things easier uh, for them. Uh, so, so I'm very worried about uh, sectoral lobbying, and that, that that doesn't mean some sectoral differentiation. But we really need to be very clear about what the principles here are. Uh, it'd be ideally politicians will be clear about the principles, but at least you know experts, the media, and so on, we can try and <laughs> hold them to account uh, for it uh, and ask them to justify. Uh, I mean, I think one principle is let's try to find policies that don't pick winners and losers, if you like, that don't identify sectors, but that to the maximum extent possible will favor the more viable sectors as a consequence. So general demand stimulus does that, right? Because it will, it will increase spending, you don't really know where it's going to flow. But the more you have of it, the more you know that the viable sectors and the viable companies will actually be confident in hiring. So that already helps you withdraw support. And here we have to note that support means two things, right? One is support for doing more and one is support for staying away from work. We've had the latter, we need to shift to the former. So if you have new viable businesses hiring, then it's easier to take away the money that goes to keeping people off work, right? And I think we can do more and be smarter about these support schemes, the furlough schemes, Kurzarbeit and so on. So a couple of things we can do is, 
want, try and make it portable, right? If somebody is furloughed, but actually has the possibility to go part-time into a new job, that should be possible, right? They should be able to keep some of this for some time so that they don't hold back from reallocating because of the furlough scheme. Um, and, you know, there's a sort of equivalent in, in the US, I guess, is that uh, exceptionally, the replacement rate in unemployment benefits is so high for a few months that who knows, are people going to go back to work before that's cut back? And of course, when it is cut back, it'll be pretty cruel. There's a pretty big dilemma coming up in a couple of months when this higher unemployment benefit runs out. Um, another thing we should do is to tweak all these furlough support schemes as much as we can to to allow and encourage partial return to work. Right? So wherever that isn't the case already, it should really be gradually tapered and combined with making it valuable for companies if they can take somebody back at 20% or 40% or 50% of their time, that that's worthwhile. So, you know, you, you want to, you want the policies to be as general as you can, but really kind of cleverly designed so that they end up flowing to the companies and the jobs that are still viable and shift people from the jobs that aren't into those that are. But, but it's important that we should encourage reallocation. And, you know, I, I think our economies were already in a bad place where too many people work in bad jobs and we should think about restructuring already. So when life gives you lemons, try and make lemonade. So maybe we can use the fact that we've had such an enormous disruption to the economy to kind of steer things back in a different direction from the status quo ante. I was picking up on that point. Um, I mean, to what extent do any of you think that there is scope to do what some people have been talking about, making government support conditional on firms doing certain things, whether that's adapting to more green ways of operating or improving work conditions, that sort of thing? Should we be doing that at the same time, Antoine? In a sense, that's the French government is very keen on you know support conditional on long list of things so uh, typically for the supports to uh, aviation is conditional on trying to move towards a more sustainable green sort of flight for the car industry the the all the loans are conditional on moving to electric car investment at least so the problem all that i think in a way that martin said is that it's the government deciding in a sense what's the priority and how to these sectors should adapt. And we're not sure that really the government is the best place to, to actually decide how to adapt. But it's true that when you think about the amount of money that is put in support of these sectors that we know should adapt to typically the long-term climate change, the environment that needs to be taken into account, it's hard to say that we're going just to provide you support and, and not ask at least in the same time or in a different way for changes to uh, the way that these businesses can be run in the long term. But uh, it's true that, for example, in the way that the French are reacting very quickly in trying to have state support conditional on what the government requirements do, it's also very close to some uh, bad habits the French government have had in the past. So that doesn't make it wrong. It just you have to be a bit cautious on how this is going to be implemented. Aaron, did you want to come on this? I mean, I'll, I'll just comment from my own experience in government that I think it's it's okay for the government to be doing some of this. Um, you know, if you can demonstrate that there is an inefficiency, if there is a market failure, if there is some reason why there aren't enough electric cars being produced, and I think actually these arguments can be made. Um, but you have to do the analysis and make these arguments. And I guess what I worry about right now is I think the government's bandwidth is quite limited. And so um, uh, trying to craft a set of restrictions, particularly if you're going industry by industry, kind of that had a sound economic basis uh, would be difficult. And instead, uh, you know, the temptation would be just to be people to kind of be going off their own gut feeling about, you know, what we, how, how they think the economy should, should run without uh, kind of a really a clear reason for that kind of subsidy. So we've had a few questions sent in um, by 
listeners in advance. Um, the first comes from Seema Malotra, who is a Member of Parliament and the Shadow Minister for Employment. And um, one of the questions she's asked is, how far do you think the digital fiscal hybrid workplace is here to stay? Um, do you think that's going to lead to sort of permanent changes in the way these economies operate? I think the experience of the lockdown where a large part of the economy has moved to uh, working from home with using digital uh, uh, communication, trying to shift meetings to, you know, uh, send uh, about that useless meetings are not necessary. So you, you wonder why they were necessary if they were useless before uh, COVID-19 or the, the crisis. But I think this has led to... Uh, a very dramatic change in the way many businesses see how they need to function and many people see how they need to interact and work. And I think this is the here to stay. And we have seen, at least in France, a big shift in, for example, already uh, business offices where a number of firms have announced that they will shift part of their staff onto not permanent, but um, working from home, a much larger share of the of the time than there was done before. And that will probably have a long-term and permanent impact in the way these businesses actually operate. Okay. Barrow Martin, do you want to come in on that one? I just wanted to say that I think it'll be a bit self-selecting. So we have, of course, had a crash course in digital information technology literacy, not just employees, but employers, which is often where where the rubber hits the road. They have to actually make this work in the company. Uh, And that will have been a useful learning experience. And it will be the people and the companies that can make the most out of it that will choose to use it. So there's a bit of a selection device here in that where it is the biggest contributor to productivity, it will probably be adopted or, or stay. So that's a good thing. So so the answer is yes, uh, and it might be even better than what uh, the colleagues have said. I, can, can I jump in on that one too? I, I think what's going to reinforce it is um, businesses are coming out financially squeezed, as are other institutions like higher ed institutions. So that's the industry I'm in. But you know, higher the higher ed institute, uh, industry has been really squeezed financially. Um, and I think that's going to mean everybody's watching their travel budgets. Everybody's watching their conference budgets. Um, everyone's looking at their space budgets. And I think um, given that, we're going to, even after the, the need for social distancing is behind us, we're going to go through this period where money is really tight and that's going to reinforce the, the work from home and, and some of these other changes. We have another question from Leila Kleinadam from the Cabinet Office, who asks that with thousands of Britons facing a period of unemployment and reduced income, her question is really about the impact that might have on rental prices in the housing market, but also whether that cost, the rental costs, suggests that other types of policy support for households that are, are now or will in future see reduced income ought to be considered as well along ty- alongside the more direct just income subsidies. Barra? Yeah, so I suppose there's kind of an, an analogous um, situation here in that <clears throat> it, we have this enhanced rate of unemployment benefit of €350 Euro a week, which relative to the regular rate that, say, a single person in their 30s will get is quite generous. Um, and will probably, for most people, not everyone, will probably cover the rent and essentials that they, that they the groceries that they need to, need to buy. There's talk of that being phased out. And as that is phased out, there's going to be a clear need for a enhancement in support for renters, say, for certain groups, for those who do have that, that cost. So people who maybe with a mortgage are able to defer that, but renters aren't or unlikely to be. We've got currently in Ireland a moratorium on evictions, and that's been, again, been extended to August. But there, there has here been an issue with the level at which supports for the, those in the rental sector have been set. And you, know, you can see why the government might be hesitant to increase these in case it pushes up rents market-wide. And, but there, again, that's in there with the difficult decisions that will have to be made down the road in terms of there's clearly going to be some groups that need extra support as the, the kind of the flat rate support is withdrawn or tapered, uh, tapered away. And, and really, I think renters are one of those groups that we're really going to need to look at uh, here, at least in Ireland and imagine in other countries as well. And Ross, want to come in on that? It is kind of striking that uh, there has been many countries have given quite a lot of support to uh, 
mortgage holders, uh, very little to renters and tenants. I mean, apart from uh, suspensions of evictions, I haven't really heard of any. There's been no use of forced cancellation or restructuring of rents, for example. So, uh, so landlords have actually come out of the crisis pretty well. Now, you know, it, you need to fix housing problems with housing policy, ultimately. Uh, but one thing that's kind of an intriguing possibility is that the digital change in working practices also has an effect on where people work from and that you get less pressure in the center of cities and the big metropolises and, and allow people to, to spread out more. That might just be a bit of help uh, because it will reduce, it will also free up office space that can over time be converted into residential space. With a bit of luck, and some clever policy to go along with it, uh, you might be able to harness that sort of work practice change to help deal with some of these housing problems too. Thank you. So we are unfortunately coming towards the end of our time. So perhaps I can pose a final big question to all of you. We've talked about these measures as an emergency response to an unusual crisis and talked about some of the ways that we might phase them out over the next few months. Looking forwards, do you think these are going to have been temporary policies or do you think the huge intervention by governments across the advanced world in response to coronavirus is going to fundamentally change what businesses and people expect from governments and will some of these sorts of policy adjustments turn out to be much more enduring uh, than the crisis itself? Um, okay, Barra? Yeah, so I, I think certainly you can see some areas in, in particular in the healthcare sector or the provision of healthcare where there is going to be a clear demand for the government to do more. And I think that's the case here. But what I'd maybe worry more about is that there isn't at the same time recognition of the need then for uh, revenue to, to rise to provide um, such high levels of spending. So you know, at the moment, we're, we're rightly focused on the kind of short term and the stimulus aspect. And we shouldn't be thinking about tax rises correctly. And, you know, and, and, and we, most countries don't seem to be in a position where they need to worry about the financing of these. But I do worry that in the longer run, there is going to be a need for greater revenue. And we know that governments tend to have difficulties in setting out how they're going to do that, or at least thinking about that, about how they do that. And maybe one positive thing from that point of view here is that the, the government that was announced over the weekend, they have committed to setting up a new Commission on Taxation and Welfare. And so to some extent, maybe this is the time that we if there is going to be need for a larger state across lots of areas, not just healthcare, but if there is going to be demands for that, that we think about how to properly finance that and to, to take us, to take our time while, while there isn't the pressure to think of the immediate revenue raising uh, necessity and to, to think about how we do that properly. Martin? I, I think there's a kind of muscle memory in politics and policymaking. And we talked already about how the knowledge that Kurzarbeit worked well for Germany in the global financial crisis was part of what inspired the construction of schemes like that or the expansion of schemes like that in many other countries this time around. And I think you'll see something similar. It may be that countries manage to pull back from these emergency measures, at least if there's no second wave and so on, and we come out of this more or less back to the previous normal but there will still be the memory, both among voters and among policymakers, about what turned out to be possible. This, this radicalism, right, that everyone turned to, that will make the thinking very differently next time there's a recession. And I think perhaps in particular, the countries uh, like the UK and the US uh, that tend to have uh, a more sort of um, standoffish attitude from the government in terms of helping uh, people, protecting people from economic shocks, it's going to be hard to to forget the furlough scheme in the next recession and go back to very low replacement rates in the UK. It's going to be hard to forget that it was possible in the US to vastly increase unemployment benefits in this crisis next time there is a big downturn where many people lose their jobs. And I think those things matter. So yes, maybe they'll be able to pull out now, but it's going to affect how things are done next time. Karen? The crisis is certainly highlighting the need for a stronger safety net um, amongst a lot of dimensions. I mean, to start, you know, the fact that workers lose their job in the United States and don't always um, have, uh, you know, proper health insurance 
coverage since so much of the health insurance is done through people's jobs. Um, so, so I think people will come out um, with that sense. I guess I'm a little skeptical about how proactive the government is going to be about actually making the changes we need uh, to the safety net just because, you know, we had this horrible recession after the financial crisis and you would have hoped that the safety net was enhanced after that. And uh, we actually, we didn't see, we didn't see much of that. And, and we saw, uh, you know, pretty quickly a, a call for austerity after the crisis and so cutbacks and um, other types of government spending. But I, you know, that said, I, I think even if the government is not proactive, I think there's going to be voter sense of sentiment that some of these changes need to be made. And that that is what gives me hope that these changes will get made because I think we'll see a groundswell of support in the population for this to occur, which will eventually get to the political system. So I'm not sure that, uh, I mean, at least for France, I mean, France was starting from um, a type of uh, public spending and safety net much above what is currently the level in the UK or the US or even Ireland. So the I'm not sure there's be we can expect a big expansion on that side. The constraints of the public finance will still be there and even more with the accumulated um, COVID debt. So I'm not sure we, we can expect a lot of changes, radical changes in the, in the, in the policies. Uh, I think what has changed uh, in France is more about the perception of how you prepare f- to face this, this crisis. I mean, the big thing has been, you know, this huge cost could have been much lower if we had enough masks, enough tests available, uh, invested in prevention and basically healthcare prevention for when actually the, this virus emerged in China in early uh, January. So in a sense, I think a lot of that in the population and the policymakers, we, we could invest in some part of the healthcare and health prevention that actually makes things a lot less costly at the end than going to full lockdown for three months for the entire country. Plus the fact that I think a lot of the behaviors of the population have changed and people have realized that actually working from home is can be partly uh, efficient not to travel every day, uh, not to commute uh, on crowded uh, public transport, uh, perhaps trying to think of the ways of uh, working. Of uh, uh, and, and these perhaps longer term changes in behavior will have longer term impacts in how then policy can be constructed and built up. Thank you. So that brings our session today to an end. Thank you very much to all of my panelists, to Karen, to Martin, to Barra and to Antoine. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing your insights. Thank you to you for tuning into this edition of IFG Live. And do keep an eye out for further reports coming from us and events looking at how the government is facing the major challenges thrown up by COVID-19 and what the UK can learn from other countries about what they're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.